0: Let's talk about something today. Let's talk about the God who is behind the hope stories. Children, you are dismissed. There they go, getting these looks. I couldn't get these questions out of my mind this week. Couldn't get them out of my mind. Two questions. Please get used to them because you're going to hear them through this entire sermon. Who is God to you? Who is God to you? And what is God to you? I want to remind you that um, as human beings, we are never neutral when it comes to worship. Never. Never. No such thing. Remember these words from last week from David Foster Wallace. There's actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Who is God to you? And what is God to you? The answer you give to those two questions, whether with your lips or, more importantly, in your heart, determines everything everything about worship and ultimately what that means to you and how it impacts you. I guess you could say it determines everything about life. Why is that true? Well, James Smith in his great book You Are What You Love says the practices of Christian worship they train our love this is why worship is the heart of discipleship. It's a counterformation to the cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and our longings. And so it's this, it's this reframing, this rearranging of our hearts to the things in the love of God that are constantly being subverted, especially our loves, by the culture, cultural practices around us or as he would call it, the cultural liturgies. But you may remember that great philosopher I quoted last week, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. Winnie the Pooh, right? It's a great statement. Because worship is about making room for God to take up the most room in your heart. But those questions, who is God to me and what is God to me? To help us really honestly answer those questions, we need to talk about America's religion. At least that's what some people call it. It's a religion that's pretty specific to America in some ways. Maybe we could probably say to Western um, Europe and America, but uh, America in these days. Christian Smith and um, Melinda Lundquist Denton have given us a name of it. They've given us a capture of it. And it has everything to do with how we view God. And the name of what some have called America's religion is this, moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful, right? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, interestingly enough, that came out of research among 3,000 teenagers 18 years ago. Think about that, 18 years ago, so these teenagers are now in their late 20s, early 30s, and this has been a consistent capture, but here's the problem. When I start sharing these things, we say, yeah, that's that's those teenagers and those young adults, yep, yep, so forgive me ahead of time, teenagers and young adults, but here's the problem. The reality is, this is the religion that our young adults, our teens, and our children, have been discipled in, especially in the church. This is what we've handed to them. And when I say we, I'm talking obviously very generally, so forgive me, maybe an over-generalistic statement. But this is what we have taught them. And if you want to really understand that, I would invite you to Google the name Christian Smith, and you could use the the, uh, um, letters, the acronym MTD, Or you can read his book *Soul Searching*. But this is the basic breakdown of moralistic um, therapeutic deism. The first basic is this: the moralistic focus is on being a good person, right? You got to be a good person. That's not all that bad. It doesn't sound like that. But the problem is that we define good by what the culture says rather than what Scripture says, right? So that's point number one. Point number two: the primary goal of this America's religion. The primary goal, the therapeutic part, is to feel good about yourself. And it's God's job to make us feel happy and take care of us. I remember hearing this years ago, long before this stuff came out, of a famous football player, uh, National League football player, who um, left his wife for another woman. And when he was asked about it, he made this statement. Well, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. See, that's the goal of moralistic therapeutic deism. It's the primary goal is to feel good about yourself, and God's job is to make me happy. And thirdly, and this is the deism part, that God really actually has little bearing on everyday life, that actually he's relatively uninvolved. That is until we want him to do something for us. God has actually little bearing on everyday life until God's supposed to answer my prayer this specific way to get what I want. And those are the three tenets. I mean, it's reduced down greatly of moralistic, therapeutic deism. In her book called Almost Christian, Kenda Creasy-Dean says this. Moralistic, therapeutic deism has little to do with God or a sense of divine mission in the world. It offers comfort, It bolsters self esteem, it helps resolve problems, and lubricates interpersonal relationships by encouraging people to do good, to feel good, and to keep God at arm's length. If I can just keep God in, let's just keep God in His place. Yeah, most of the time we interpret that kind of stuff to say, let's keep God, you know, keep Him in church, and let's keep God in my personal life. Well, you know, I have my quiet time in the morning, and I I go to church, I do this. God, you stay over here while I have these parts of my life. And we compartmentalize life, we fragment life. But that's really not what God desires. The bottom line is this, this civic religion, though we would probably never state it this way, puts us at the center of life, and we are the ones who determine who God is and what he is. And you may say, well when I hear some of those things, Pastor Jeff, that that's not all that bad, well, what does it matter? Well, I guess it all depends no, I don't guess, it's just fact. It all depends on how you answer those questions. Who is God to me? What is God to me? Now, let's be really clear. God desires us to use our talents and our skills and our gifts and our ingenuity and our resources to do things like create wealth, to prosper, to engage in commerce and labor, to create, he, he gives us all that, to create functioning good for our society. But there's a temptation that lurks with that that Christopher Wright points out. He says, when people claim to be the sole source of their own wealth, or indeed the sole owners of the creational resources which their wealth depends on, then God's clear warning pricks the bubble of such pride. Do you know that God has a specific warning about that in Scripture? It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This is the warning in the message paraphrase. If you start thinking to yourselves, I did all this, And all by myself. I'm rich. It's all mine. Well, think again. Remember that God, your God, gave you the strength to produce all this wealth. If you forget, forget God, your God, and start taking up with other gods, serving and worshiping them, I'm on record right now as giving you firm warning. This is Moses speaking. I'm on record with you right now. I'm giving you firm warning. That will be the end of you. And that's a real positive message. So, those stubborn questions. Who is God to you? What is God to you? Well, you see, those questions are really important. And they, they lie at the heart of this worship training manual. And it's what our psalm was really actually instructing us on earlier, Psalm 89. You could turn there if you'd like. But here's what I want you to understand. It is why the hope stories we just heard today not only matter, but happen. It is the reason Christ's father gathered in the early church in spite of threats of persecution and death. It is actually the sole reason why we gather here each and every Sunday. The sole reason. It is the primary motivating factor in seeking to do good in the world, bringing God's shalom by seeking the welfare of the city, primarily because as we place God in the center, we are then compelled to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the public square in word, attitude, and action, living contrary to the ways and the narratives of the culture around us. And yet, it is so easy to create A God in our image, right? It is. And by the way, idols are self generated. We create them. We create them. It's not someone out there who creates them. We might adopt it, but in the adoption of an idol, we create it. That's what's really important. That's what this idea of creating a God in our own image, we call that an idol. So a quick word about idols, again from Christopher Wright. Three things. Idols deprive God of his proper glory. The fundamental failure of idols is they take glory away from God. Secondly, idols distort the image of God in humans. Because idols don't care about humans. Idols are self-focused, not other-focused. If you worship that which is not God, you distort the image of God in yourself. Read Romans one. And then thirdly, and this is what I really want us to understand, idols are profoundly disappointing. They can't deliver whatever we think they will do for us. Let's be clear about an idol, anything, or anyone, anything, or anyone that we put above God. Anything, or anyone, that's more important to me than the worship of God. This is how Christopher Wright goes on to say it. This is his language. He's from Britain, so it sounds kind of British. Kings, armies, horses, treaties, riches, natural resources, All these things are not really God's and are unable to bear the weight of trust we put in them. They're unable to bear the weight of trust we put in them. So who is God to you? What is God to you? Questions with both eternal and temporal importance. All right, so here's the bad news. That was my introduction. Okay, that's the bad news. The good news is I'm more than halfway done, okay? Psalm 89 teaches us answers to these questions. And let me just give these to you briefly. First of all, God is the God of unending love. Idols cannot offer unending love because idols are human made and they are temporary and that means they're destructible. They're not only destructive, they're destructible. They can't last. Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. I will declare that your love stands firm forever. It never ends. He keeps loving us. Secondly, God is the God of unmoving faithfulness. Seven times in this psalm, the word faithfulness is repeated over and over and over and over again. Verse eight, who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. And that word for surround literally means it's coming at you from every side. That's our God. We just sang that our God is for us. The the true God is for us. He keeps coming at us with his faithfulness. That's our God. And then God is the God of unmistakable peace. Verse 9, you rule over the surging sea when its waves mount up, you still them. Who does that remind you of? Does Does that remind you of a certain one who walked on water in the midst of the storm and got into the boat with the disciples? Does that remind you of the one who walks through the storm and in the storm with you and with me? This God who's the God of unmistakable peace and he walks into the boat and he goes, peace be still. I know we have this little sticker in our house somewhere and it says something like this. Sometimes God calms the storm but sometimes God calms his child while the storm rages. It's a good word for us. And then next, God is the God of unrelenting justice. Do you know that no one wants to make things right more than God? Untainted. He wants to make all things right. He wants to bring the world to rights, as N.T. Wright would say. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. What's the foundation of the rule of God? Justice equity, making all things right, righteousness, not a legalistic let's get up and line up with the program, but the righteousness of God that seeks the well-being of the city. And then it goes on and says, and love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness, justice, faithfulness, love, unrelenting justice. And then lastly, God is the God of unwavering strength. And this especially is the theme, this is the descriptor of God in Psalm 89 that's so critical, and let me explain why. Verse 15, blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord, for you are their glory and strength. We need to understand this. God doesn't give us strength. God is strength. And when Jesus Christ is my Savior, I have God's strength in me. You need to think differently about that. Rather than thinking like God's at a distance, see, moralistic therapeutic deism says, God, I need strength, and thinks that God's going to say, okay, zap, here's some strength, boop. But the true Christian faith says this, why does Paul say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? Because the Christian faith, as I'm going to talk about in a little bit, says, Christ in me is the hope of glory. And when he's in me, he's strength. And that's where I find my strength. You see, now, think about this. Why is all that important? Because you need to follow this very long psalm and see where it all goes. For another time later today, you can even pick it up at verse 46. Because what happens in this psalm is the psalmist is just talking about these beautiful descriptors of who God is, just like you were so powerfully singing this morning. He then shifts to a psalm of lament. And he begins to lament the dark place where God seems absent. And as you're reading it, it looks like life is hanging in the balance. And the psalmist is misunderstood and he's rejected. And hardship is coming over him like a steamroller. And when life is like that, we need the God who was just described We need the one and only true God who can bear the weight of our lives and the world we live in. Because whether you think you can or not, just so you know, you can't. And I can't. When life is like that, we need the God who is the one true God. He sat across from me drinking coffee, We talked about the trial of his life, a trial that was all-consuming. And I looked at him and I said this, whatever you do in this time, don't try to fix anything, but give yourself to worshiping God. And then I said, now is the time to worship God as best as you can so you can calibrate your heart towards God and there find your strength. Because your circumstances aren't going to do it. Your religion's not going to do it. Your wealth is not going to do it. Your job is not going to do it. Your family's not going to do it. Your training's not going to do it. Calibrate your heart toward God. Why? 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 Because unlike an idol, God is the God who is the only one who can bear the weight of the trust we place in him. No one else can bear the weight. No one else can bear the weight. No one. Not one person, not one thing can bear the weight of the trust we need to place the weight of my life, the weight of your life, I don't know about you, but my life is heavy. And so is yours. There's a lot of weight in life. That's why I love the word belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, it says. Our problem is, is we have taken that word belief and we have made it something just intellectual. We have built religion around belief. When the meaning of the word belief means putting your entire weight on something, faith isn't having some religious concept that you adopt. Faith is saying, I am banking the entire weight of my life, like I am on this platform, or if I stood on that chair, which I'm not going to do this morning, or when I ride a bicycle, or when I get on a ladder. Like Trevor was doing this week. I'm getting on there. I'm putting the entire weight of my life. That's what faith is, because there's only one who can bear the weight of Jeff DeFrance's life, of all of my life. I love these old words. They're old now, from Corey Ten Boom. They're just very famous, very old. They came to my mind. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. It's the constant refrain of Scripture. It's included in this psalm. There is is none like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this psalm lifts out how God is unique among the gods and superior to any God we want to substitute for the real thing. And so let us embrace the God who stands alone, the only one deserving of our worship. He stands alone. He demands singularity of worship. Why does God do that? Well, we'll get to that. But first, let's embrace, let's, let's affirm together who God is from Scripture. Are you ready? All right, let's read this together. Go ahead and put that text there. We go. Read it with me. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Praise God. Then let's look at what it says in 1 Corinthians. Next slide. Say it together with me. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. What a powerful word. Let's go one more place Isaiah 40. Let's say it. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength not one of them is missing. Look at that last line. Because of his great power and his mighty strength not one of them is missing. I know he's talking about stars and such but listen to this. Because of his great power and his mighty strength you are not missing on God's radar. Isn't that a good word? Now, just, let's just stop there a minute. Why does this singularity of devotion and worship matter? Why does God say you will have no other gods before me? Why? Here's why. Say it with me. Next one. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. is singular in his demand for us to worship him. What a thought. You see, this matters because there's no other God who can bear the weight of our lives. This is why God demands singularity of worship, not because God is a narcissistic, egotistical deity, but because God is a God of compassion and everlasting love, and true justice, and mercy, and God knows that no one, and no one thing, can truly bear the weight of our lives, and our trials, and our sins, and he went to the cross to show us that, that only one could bear the weight of my life, your life, and my friends. I don't know if you know that, don't know this today, but that's why you're here, it's the heartbeat of worship. For us to come and remember that, because the world needs to know that, and the church exists for the world. Christ is the head of the church. We exist to be witnesses to this truth in the world around us. But we need to gather together to be reminded to worship, to encourage one another in this life journey of worshiping. It's the heartbeat of worship. Because this is the God who's the only one who can change our hearts. And we believe in this optimism of grace that's not just taking care of our sin problem, but it's changing our hearts. This is the God who can do that. He can forgive our sins. You can't bear the weight of your sin. I can't either. Psalm 32 is all about that. Psalms psalmist I can't bear the weight of my sin. He's the only one who can strengthen our souls. He's the only one who can redeem our past like broken relationships growing up. He's the only one. This is the God, the only God who meets us right where we are. Remember the Christmas story? The Word became flesh. Flesh. He understands, he cares. This is the God, the only God. Get this, he's the only one who has the capability to fill us with his presence. Get this. This is what was said of God in the Old Testament. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? And the answer was, no one. No one can build a temple that can contain God except God. Because this is the God who made you to be his temple. That's what it says in scripture. And I love these words in Colossians 1.27. I quoted them earlier. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus in you. Nothing else. You can try. We all try to fill something in us other than God, thinking that that will give us the glory we want in life. But Jesus gives us that glory in life. And this is the God we come to worship. The God who wants to live in us through Jesus Christ. So, who is this God to you? Who is he? This isn't a question for someone necessarily who has had nothing to do with God. It is that but it's especially pertinent for those of us who've lived with God for a lifetime. To ask ourselves, because sometimes, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we become so familiar with God and the God that we've made God to be, which is also an idol, that we need to remind ourselves, who is this God? And what is this God to me? This is the one God who alone can bear the great weight of our trust in Him. Our worship team is going to come. And I ask that as we close today, we have a slightly extended time of just worshiping God, just worshiping Him. And if in our worship you say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, now that you put it that way, I have some weight. That only he can bear. Do you have some sin that only he can bear? There's no shame, by the way, in recognizing your own places and choices that have been inconsistent with Jesus. Those places where I've tried to be God. No shame in acknowledging those, being honest about those. There's no shame in acknowledging that you're not strong enough for that trial you're facing. There's no shame in that. But just to say, God, here's my life. You're the one who can bear the weight of it. There's no shame in saying to him, I can't bear this fear any longer. I can't bear this depression any longer. I can't bear this addiction any longer. It's not like a snap your fingers and everything's gonna be good. But now we lay it to the one who already knows and who give us grace and strength and community to walk the journey worshiping him. This is why it's important to remember there is none like you, oh God. Let's stand together and let's worship the God who alone can bear the weight of our trust in Him. You know, when we applaud, we're not applauding the worship team. We're not applauding applauding ourselves. There's an audience of one. My friends, there's an audience of one. Whether here in the sanctuary, or in your cubicle tomorrow, or with your grandchildren, or with your children, Or in the classroom. Well, I guess they're not in the classroom anymore. Or you just graduated. There's an audience of one. Right? Who is God to you? What is God to you? How great is our God? So, receive this benediction. As we go from this place may we carry to our great God the weight of our lives that only He can bear. And then we walk into a world revealing to our world who this God is and what this God can be to the world around us through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we go and be and do that in his name, amen. God bless you, be dismissed.